All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to Luke chapter 1 this morning, our second week in the gospel according to Luke. And so we're going verse by verse. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and make you aware of some things that are going on in the life of our church. Uh, this week, um, on Wednesday night, I got a phone call from Diane. Diane is our secretary. She actually is the brains behind everything that happens at Meadowview, if you know her. Her uh, niece and her grandniece were uh, killed in an accident. And so I'm, I'm just going to give you that information uh, because she knows many of you, and it would be very meaningful to her to have you reach out uh, to share a prayer with her, to, to show her some love. And so um, please be, be mindful of that and uh, reach out to Diane. Uh, other than that, we have had a great week, a great week of ministry. Um, we, we got a phone call this week from Julian. He's a pastor in Mexico that we support. And really, his, his phone call was really just one of Thanksgiving. It's a week of Thanksgiving, and he wanted to say how thankful he is for Medivue and its continued support. And in fact, his, his own words were that because of the support and because of the love that we've shown, it's gotten him through some very difficult years of ministry in Mexico. And so he just wanted to say thanks, and he said, hey, I'd love to see you again. I won't even make you work if you come down. i just give you a hug. Just come on down and see us. Uh, also this week, just so you know, our church was able to bless some families in a local school with a Thanksgiving meal. And so uh, we were able to do that, and, and uh, just to let you know, th- this is how God works. We're, we're in a public school, we're sitting in a, a lobby of a public school, and we're handing out these vouchers for food, and multiple people with tears in their eyes said, you have no idea. And in a public school, you have us being able to lay hands on people and pray for them and, and the situations that they're in, and like, that's happening right here. And so praise God for that. Thank you for your faithfulness and how you uh, continue to give so that we can be a missional-minded church. And so I want to thank you for that. Now, as I, as I stand here this morning, I know you might think it's a special occasion because I'm wearing a sport coat. Um, it's really that I got in late last night. I've been speaking at a youth event all weekend in Sevierville, and I was not going to iron my shirt. So I put a coat on. And uh, so we're here. Last night was a great night. We ended. I, I uh, was able to speak to a, a student ministry of about 75 kids, and, and really, as, as we ended last night, there was a moment where kids were dealing with some stuff, and, and we had some serious talks all weekend about how they're dealing with false teaching and how they're dealing with uh, things that are coming from the culture, and, and last night, there were several of them that just broke, broke in repentance, and uh, if you know me, I'm, I'm somewhat of a germaphobe, and so I, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, go speak with your, your counselors, and I kind of stood off to the side. And uh, this, this middle school boy with a mullet that was taller than I was that hadn't showered came over and just grabbed me and started crying. And it was sweet. I was like, okay. You know, and I was like holding him there and praying for him. And then I looked up and all the middle school boys were coming. And I was like, oh, this, this, can, this is over. Okay, like, this is good. Um, so that's, that's how I get here this morning. A little tired, but I'm excited about Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Luke, as I shared last week, He was a Gentile, a physician, a friend, and a missionary companion of Paul. He does a thorough investigation of the life of Christ, and he painstakingly interviews eyewitnesses so that he is able to write an account, a biblical, historical narrative of the events of Jesus Christ. And why does he write that? Verse 4 of chapter 1, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. We, as we get into into this section of Scripture today, even as we look at the birth of Jesus foretold, We have this account that was written so that we would know. We would know all of these things 
that took place. Last week, we began with a baby announcement that was 400 years in the making, and today we have another baby announcement that is, that is coming. It is the, the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. Now, I wrote on here, illustration of something impossible. That's just what I have here, and it says, I write this on Tuesday, and I hope the impossible has happened, that the Tennessee Vols have defeated the Georgia Bulldogs. Didn't happen. So evidently, there's one miracle we're going to talk about this morning, and that's the birth of Jesus Christ. All right. So, uh, Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26, we'll go through 38. Let's read God's word together. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. Well, he will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth. And her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the account of the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ that God would put on flesh to redeem a people lost in sin. We thank you that you came to seek and save those who are lost. We thank you for the fact that nothing is impossible with you. Father, we bow before you today. We honor you as king who sits on a throne that will last forever and ever and ever. And we, we long today to respond as Mary did. I am your servant. May your will be done in my life. In Christ's name, amen. First thing I want you to see is the favored one. The favored one is mentioned here in this section. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed of a man, to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. It's the sixth month. We pick up in the narrative six months later from where we left off last week. It's the sixth month in reference to Elizabeth's pregnancy. She's entering her her third trimester, and this is what's taking place. An angel Gabriel was sent from God again. He sent. So who is this Gabriel? Gabriel is the angel who stands in the presence of God. Luke 1.19 says this, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The angel Gabriel is sent to bring the good news. Luke's gospel account is giving us a historical narrative with a supernatural glimpse into the spiritual realm. 
This is twice that we've seen an angel step into the narrative. No gospel writer mentions angels in scripture more than Luke does. He mentions angels some 23 times in his gospel. Clearly, Luke wants us to grab this fact that there are things happening that are outside of what we can see. We see that Gabriel has come in the past. He came to visit Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 22, reads this way. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, the man he's an angel, he appears to be in human form, man form, whom I seen in my vision at the first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. We pick up in verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 10 of Daniel. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael... One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. Gabriel says that he was responding to the prayers of Daniel. He was coming as a messenger of the Lord. And here we see that as he's bringing this, this news to Daniel, he's, he's held up. That there's something happening. There's some spiritual battle that is going on where he is being held back by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Well, seeing that Michael is also referred to as the chief prince, we can see that there is some angelic and demonic situation going on here. This is probably a fallen angel assigned to the geographical location of Persia. Or maybe it's Satan himself. And he's coming against the messenger of God. So we have two angels that are mentioned here, Gabriel and Michael. Gabriel is the one who declares the word of God. Michael is the one who defends the word of God. They both show up here, and Luke is saying clearly, listen, I want to emphasize the fact that there are things happening that you are unaware of that are outside of your physical, your physical world. Paul would say the same thing in Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this angel Gabriel steps in and comes to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Verse 26, a city of Galilee. Galilee was known for its high percentage of Gentiles. It was really looked down upon. It's never mentioned even in the Old Testament. And, and even as we have from Nathaniel's account of John 1, 45 through 46, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Nazareth was not even really a city. It was a town. It was probably of a population of 400 people. It's a really small town. Everyone knows everyone's business in a small town. 400 people. John MacArthur says Nazareth was not on any of the major trade routes. All the important roads bypassed it. It was well off the beaten path and far from important centers of Jewish culture and religion. But yet, he comes, verse 27, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, to the, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was 
Mary. The word virgin here is mentioned twice, and it's mentioned there twice because of its importance. I cannot overemphasize the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. There are many who would like to deny this. There was many who would like to uh, say it doesn't really matter, but I, I can give you three very important reasons why Jesus was born of a virgin and why it's doctrinally important for what we believe. Jesus, A, is the promised seed of the woman. If you go all the way back to the curse, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, there is a promise that is made even in the curse that, that is given. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is a plan here of her offspring, not man's offspring. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. There is a reason why we believe in a virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Well, number one, we believe that he is the promised seed, the one that was promised from the very beginning. He's born of a woman. He's born under the law, meaning he is in bodily form. He's human, but he's not born under the curse of sin. So B, Jesus is under the law, but not under the curse of sin. Why is this important? J.D. Watson says, why is this doctrine important? Because the sin nature is transmitted through the earthly father, through Adam, not by the mother, through Eve. Adam was the representative of the race and was responsible for the fall. If Jesus had been born of a man, he would have inherited sin. But as Paul makes clear, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is why the virgin birth is so important, because we believe that Jesus Christ was born sinless. And for him to be born sinless means that he could not be born of a man, but he had to be born of a woman. He's the promised seed, and he's born sinless. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a beautiful thought that he was born not of the dust. He's not born with a sin nature. He's born of heaven. He is, he is God in the flesh to a virgin. See, Jesus is truly human and truly divine. The Heidelberg Catechism has a question, question 35, and it says, How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? The answer, he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin. Mine since I was conceived, meaning that we were born in sin. If Jesus had not been born of a human, we could not believe in his full humanity. At the same time, if birth were like any other human birth, through the union of a human father and mother, we would question his full divinity. The virgin birth is necessary to secure both the real human nature and a completely divine nature. The virgin birth is an essential doctrine 
for those who believe in Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. As Matthew records this in 123, he says, Behold, the virgin shall, con- you, uh, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I know it's early to sing Christmas songs, but when you're covering a section of scripture like this, it seems appropriate, doesn't it? That there is a God who dwelled with us in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. He came to redeem deem those who were under the curse of sin by not being under the curse of sin. So to a virgin, verse 27, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Betrothal, we don't really have those these days. You can think arranged marriage. As a parent, it's not that bad of an idea, you know. Um, it's an arranged marriage, but it's, it's more than uh, being engaged. It really had a legal standing. And so you were legally bound together, and there was no way to get out of this unless you went through a divorce or, or something like that. So they were, they were legally bound together without the consummation and the cohabitation that goes, goes in place. And so this would have happened for a year before the actual ceremony of being married. And so she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. She probably is 12, 13, 14 years of age, many commentators believe. This is a young teenage girl. Verse 27, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Luke now brings in another layer of Bible prophecy, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was an unconditional covenant made between God and David through which God promises David that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come from his lineage and would sit on a throne forever and ever. It's unconditional because it has no conditions upon his obedience. It's a promise. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14 says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will, make, I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Luke makes this connection that there's another layer of Bible prophecy taking place. Not only that the Messiah would come from a virgin, but he would be in the lineage of David, that he would be the one, the promised one that would sit on the throne, and that throne would be a forever kingdom. We see in Matthew's gospel that the lineage of Joseph is that of a Davidic lineage. He's adopted, and so by the adoption rights there, the legal part, he is a descendant of David's lineage. But Luke says, you know what, we'll also give later on Mary's lineage, and we also see that she comes from the Davidic line. And so we see that this is being fulfilled in the fact that they're betrothed to one another. Verse 28, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. Oh, favored one. 
It's important to notice this. The, we talk about the favored one here. You have found favor with God. Many wrongly believe that she was a bestower of grace. That's not what this says. That's taken uh, and added to. Uh, our Catholic friends believe that. But this really means a uh, favored one comes from the root word that we get grace from. And so, oh, favored one, you have found grace with God. We, we said this not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, as we talked about Noah. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Grace was placed upon him. This word is used one other place in the New Testament. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. There in verse 6, it says this, uh, uses this word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There it is. We have found grace in him. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. Oh, favored one, you have received God's grace. What a beautiful narrative. Mary, a teenage girl, an ordinary young lady in an ordinary small town, in a place that has a population smaller than my graduating high school class, you have found favor. You found grace. You have found grace in God, and that means you are now going to be family with God. Listen, if you have found grace, you are in the family of God. And it is by grace and grace alone that you are welcomed in. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, favored one. Number two, let's look at the fullness of God. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. As J. Stuart Holden says, the incarnation is the profoundest of all mysteries and the miracle in which all other miracles are hid. If you go way back to 449, Leo I of Rome says this. He who became man in the form of a servant is he who, in the form of God, created man. Thus, in the whole and perfect nature of true manhood, true God was born, complete in what belonged to him, complete in what belonged to us, one and the same mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ should be able both to die in respect to the one and not die in respect to the other. Each form accomplishes in concert with the other what is appropriate to it, the word performing what belongs to the word and the flesh carrying out what belongs to the flesh. The one is splendid with miracles, the other succumbs to injuries. By reason of this unity of person to be understood in both natures, the Son of Man is said to have come down from heaven when the Son of God took flesh from the virgin from whom he was born. And again, the Son of God is said to have been crucified and buried, though he suffered those things not in the Godhead itself 
wherein the only begotten is co-eternal and co-substantial with the Father, but in the weakness of his human nature. To understand that Jesus Christ was in the flesh is one of the most difficult things for our minds to comprehend. We see where Paul writes in Philippians 2, 6-8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus. Just something about that name, isn't it? Something about that name. For over 2,000 years, more and more people have come to know the name of Jesus. Since AD 33, over 8 billion people in one estimate have claimed to be followers of Jesus. Today, the name of Jesus can be found in more than 6,000 languages. And more and more are being added every day. There's something about the name Jesus. But for Mary and Joseph, Jesus was a common name. It would have been like naming your kid John or Jason or James or something like that. It was just another common name. In fact, many believe that Barabbas, who was released at the crucifixion, his name was Jesus Barabbas, which is translated, ironically enough, Jesus, son of the father. But Jesus has a meaning. Yeshua in Aramaic, Joshua, as you may know from the Old Testament, Yahweh saves. As Kevin DeYoung puts it, let's be clear, the name Jesus is not a magic wand. Chanting it does not give one special powers. The power in the name is the person behind the name. In biblical times, names meant something. They were more than badges of identification. They were told, often told others who they were and what purpose God had for their life. Thus, Adam was the first man. Eve was the mother of all living things. Abraham was the father of many nations. Benjamin was the son of his father's right hand. Moses was drawn out of the water. Peter was the rock. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. What about Jesus? And you shall call his name Jesus, the angel told them. For he shall save his people from their sins. More than a great teacher... More than an enlightened man, more than a worker of miracles, more than a source of meaning of life, more than a self-help guru, more than a self-esteem builder, more than a political liberator, more than a caring friend, more than a transformer of cultures, more than a purpose for the purposeless, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. And that is what his name means. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? There is something about that name. Verse 32, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Again, we see a reference back to the Davidic line, that he will sit on his throne, that he will be referred to as the son of the most high, meaning that he will be called equal to God. And this is eventually what gets Jesus crucified, is his claim to be equal with the Father. Psalm 10, 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his his land 
Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Hebrews 1, 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And Mary said to the angel, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? I, don't, you, don't you just love this? It's, it's like this teenage girl goes, I have a question. I, I don't understand how this is going to happen. Like, I know how it works. I'm, I'm a virgin. I don't, I don't understand. And so the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. The virgin birth, clearly a miracle. Many have tried to wrestle through this, but it really means that the Holy Spirit came and overshadowed her. It's the same word that is used for the glory of God resting in the tabernacle. It's the same word used for the cloud overshadowing the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. The presence of God hovering and enveloping Mary miraculously causes her to conceive the Lord Jesus Christ who is eternal God, yet fully man. As Warren Wearsby says, Mary's womb became the holies of holies for the Son of God. It's so unique that we can't describe it in any other way than there was a body that was prepared for divinity to dwell in. There was a body prepared for divinity to dwell in. Hebrews 10.5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Jesus was prepared to be the sinless, ultimate sacrifice, the promised seed of a woman. He was born of a virgin. He was born sinless. He was born under the law, in human flesh, but not under the curse of sin. He is both God and man, all wrapped up, both humanity and divinity in unity in the body that was created in Mary's womb. The fruit of surrender. And behold, her relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Don't you love that verse? And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary receives an affirmation. She's been, she's had a bomb dropped in her lap. Can, can we agree with that? Like you, hey, grace, you get grace. We're going to make you pregnant and you're going to give birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, what? Right? Like, now she needs a little bit of affirmation. She needs affirmation. What do I do? Who can I talk to? Where do I go? You are not alone. This is, the, this is what she is told. You're not alone. You actually have someone that you can confide in. There is someone else that you can go to, someone else to share your faith journey with. You're not alone. Listen, if you've received the grace of God, let me tell you something. You are not alone. You have a multitude of family members around you. 
that you can share your life experiences with. Listen, I need to talk to you about this. I don't know what to do about this. I need to be discipled. You have a multitude of people around you. You're not alone. Affirmation two, nothing is impossible with God. John MacArthur says, if nothing is too hard for God's omnipotence, then everything is possible with him. God, whose power knows no limits and who is not bound by the laws of nature that he created, can accomplish anything consistent with his holy nature and purposes. Gabriel's reminder of what God had done in the past reassured Mary of his power to keep his word to her. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So this is Mary's response. Mary gives her affirmation. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary has received the grace of God. She has heard the word of God. And now, by faith, she surrenders to the will of God with a fruit of service. Mary receives grace. She receives grace. It's not out of anything that she's done. She hasn't earned it. She hasn't deserved it. But she has found favor. She hears the truth. The angel Gabriel delivers to her the truth, God's own word. Here's a message from the Lord. I stand in the presence of God. And her response is to surrender to his will. Isn't that the call of all of us? If we've received the grace of God, if we've heard the word of God, isn't it our job then to say, I'm a servant to the will of God? Even if it's hard, even if, even if I have to deal with some things that, that may be difficult, I am at your, I'm at your call. The word servant here is maidservant. It's the lowest female servant. It's basically one who sells themselves into service. This is the response of those who have received grace. I sell myself to you, Lord. I'm all yours. I am fully in. Let me end with this quote by Joe Stowell. Living in a small, backward Galilean village where everyone knew everyone else's business, she would have to live with the perceived shame of her premarital pregnancy. Explaining to her mother the visit of the angel and the Holy Spirit probably didn't calm things down. To say nothing of the devastating interruption that her pregnancy would bring to her plans to marry Joseph. And while we're thinking about Joseph, what would she tell him? Would he believe her? In light of these personal ramifications, her response to the angel who told her the news about the role of Jesus' mother is amazing. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Her words remind us that a life of significance is most often preceded by a heart eager to surrender to God's will, regardless of the cost. Let me ask you today, are you eager to surrender to the will of God regardless of the cost?